Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line, attempting to carve her own makeshift sidekick out of some nearby pine, it's Christy Strauss. <laughs> yeah, it's not going very well. You know, it's a tough no? thing to do. You know, no. I mean, yeah. Geppetto is a, is a master because I, I, I don't know. I just have a stick. You just so. have a stick, it or or do you have like a, a two by? What's the the Cartoon Network show where like the kid just had like a two by four as his sidekick? Is that Ed Ed and Eddie? Is that is that show? I, I don't know, but it sounds like sounds like an awesome show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna definitely like look that up, and then we'll just make that the image to to go with this this episode once it releases online. Uh, well, Christy, welcome. Uh, today on. This very special episode, we're going to be discussing two recent releases. We're going to be talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Um, we're also going to be talking about The Whale, which is out in theaters. Um, I guess before we 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 jump in, the Golden Globe nominations came out today. I don't really care to dive that deep into them, but I'm I'm curious. Do you, are you back on board, Christy? Are you back on board with caring about the the Golden Globes, or are you a little bit like um? I'm I'm sorry. I thought we agreed not to pay attention to this anymore. <laughs> well, considering I didn't know that until you just said it, <laughs> as I'm slightly googling, um, I honestly, you know, I don't know. The Golden Globes have become kind of in the past for me, but I am curious. I mean, you know, I can't help it. I'm looking at them right now. I yeah. I, I I just sort of like pulled up my Twitter today and was like oh wait that was to wait we're i thought we all made the pack that we were just not going to pay attention <laughs> to this anymore and like even like i'm even cu- curious about like okay so they're clearly back on nbc again but like are people going to show up for this like the top gun movie is nominated for a bunch of awards but i'm i'm pretty sure tom cruise said he was mailing his golden globes back like a year ago so yeah. like is is anyone actually going to show up to this thing I don't know. I guess that's the question, but they're uh, definitely they're being bold and going going for it. I hope so. I get hoping for it. Um, uh, well, ugh. let's 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 talk about something that hopefully we we uh, we do like, unlike the Golden Globes, <laughs> uh, which is um, Guillermo del Toro and his his new uh, animated version of Pinocchio. Uh, this has been kind of out in. Uh, limited release for the past couple weeks but now it is available to stream on netflix so this is kind of like the ideal time to talk about it um this is weirdly enough one of two pinocchio adaptations that came out this year um i don't know if anyone is is, is aware there there was a a live action disney pinocchio that robert zemeckis directed a few months back with tom hanks as geppetto i think um, a lot of people forgot about it after watching I was going to say probably less said the better on on that movie probably like one of the true like have you ever had the experience how often do you have the experience of just seeing something and are like I kind of just feel embarrassed for everyone involved in, in this that's that kind of was my feeling about the the other live action or the, the live action Pinocchio I guess the Guillermo del Toro version that's out now is stop motion animation but the fact that we've gotten two Pinocchio movies this year um, you know, th- this is a story that there's been numerous reincarnations of over the years. I believe there's like two Roberto Benigni versions. There is like a couple of years ago, Robert Downey Jr. wanted to do a version that I believe Paul Thomas Anderson was going to write and direct. Um, huh. You know, what would that it, have looked like? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I'm uh, part of me is kind of a little glad that didn't happen, but also like I'm enough of a Paul Thomas Anderson fan that I, I would be curious what he would do with like a big budget children's movie. Um, Especially (laughs) since he seems like hardcore, like in super dad mode at this point in life. But, um, and even, even something like, I mean, Steven Spielberg's AI is like its own riff on the Pinocchio story. So I, I think this is kind of just building up to ask you first, like, what do you think it is about Pinocchio as a story that makes it this text that, a lot of major filmmakers kind of are attracted to and want to do their version of. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think this story was originally written in like 18 something, like the original Pinocchio. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's old <laughs> at this point. Um, and there has been so many like adaptations of it. And I, I don't know if it's just because at the basis it's it's about like not only wanting to be human, but what it means to be human. And even, you know, that kind of central theme is something that can be so um, molded mm-hmm. and, and you know, made into, and obviously Del Toro does that here, um, but kind of used as like a stepping stone to make into your own. But also, you know, there is such a thing as redundancy. Like, how many times do we need to see Pinocchio? Like, right. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and I'm actually a defender of AI, by the way. I feel like some people are hard on that movie, but I like that. I, I feel like the <laughs> reputation is is coming around, though, in the last yeah. couple of years. Like, I, I'm with you. I really like that movie. Um, and I, I feel like, especially with the Spielberg conversations more recently, with the Fablemans coming out, I feel like I heard a lot of people stumping for actually ai is one of the best spielberg movies recently which um i would not i would not say that was necessarily the consensus even like five years ago so it's yeah it's curious that that's it was one of those movies around. that i watched the first time and i didn't think i really liked that much and then Same. i don't know why i watched it the second time and loved it and it's interesting it's actually on uh, roger ebert's like best movies list huh. so and he had a similar experience um, yeah. where he didn't love it the first time so yeah i mean that you know just random shout out watch ai but yeah he's like chasing the blue fairy to become a real boy like the whole movie yeah um, and i wonder if there's also some aspect of the pinocchio story that you know like geppetto making something that then you know comes to life i i, I just wonder if that's an aspect that's like a draw to filmmakers of the idea of like being able to like instill magic into this kind of into your craft in a way um, as well as kind of what you were talking about with kind of like, there's all these kind of existential questions about what does it mean to be human and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, I, I quite enjoy this new Guillermo del Toro version. I think kind of piggybacking off what you said earlier, like you, you hear on paper, like, all right, there's a new version of, pinocchio out there and it's kind of like how many how many versions of this do we have to do before it's kind of just sort of like a copy of a copy of a copy and i think what i enjoyed about this version is it really does feel like his spin on this story like it makes sense that this is being sold by netflix as it's guillermo del toro's pinocchio right like the full (laughs) title of like this really feels like him kind of taking this story and altering certain aspects of it to kind of fit themes and ideas that he's kind of been wrestling with throughout his entire work. Um, I know you're a big Guillermo del Toro fan, so I'm curious like what your thoughts were of it. I kind of assumed you also really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, you know, definitely a big Guillermo del Toro fan. I uh, had to search for it on Netflix, which was annoying. What? Yeah. <laughs> They need to yeah. get that algorithm fixed. I mean, you you can't <laughs> the Netflix algorithm and how people be like, I had to search for this movie that like they're trying to put out into the world now. Like that that just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and yeah, I I loved it. I I really did. I thought that it was exactly what I would imagine Del Toro making a Pinocchio film. And even then, you know, I, I read something somewhere about it being dark and. I mean, it is, it's more, if anything, I think realistic, despite the fact that there's, you know, obviously magic, but, um, I still think, you know, it's actually applicable to, you know, even younger audiences. Like, I still think that this is a a movie you could watch with your kids, you know what I mean? So I don't think it's like super dark. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, at lunch today was asking me about it and, and to kind of piggyback off of what you said about like how dark it is versus how sort of much it is a family movie. He, he like, he basically asked like, is this like a very adult take on Pinocchio? And my response was not really. I mean, it definitely deals with some heavier themes. Um, as, as I said, kind of like, it, you know, connecting to other work del Toro has done. Like there, the theme of death is very important in this movie. And, I think Del Toro taking this idea of like, well, what does it mean to be human? I mean, one of the most kind of human 
experiences we can go through is to die or to experience loss and death and that being a crucial part of pinocchio's journey to becoming a quote-unquote real boy um you know this is also a movie that is set in italy in the 1930s so it is set in kind Mm -hmm. of like mussolini italy and is very much about fascism and living in a fascist state and could kind of be conceivably put into a trilogy with something like um devil's backbone or pan's labyrinth is kind of these fantasy stories that are put against the backdrop of kind of a fascist dictatorship um and kind of political unrest in a government Yeah. yeah where sort of like the more kind of fantastical or horror elements that are more at the forefront of the story having a kind of like allegorical uh connection to the real world terrors that are kind of happening in the background but as as i sort of also told my friend at lunch like it is still like a children's movie like there's whimsical songs and it it, you uh, kind of one of my first gut reactions was like it's kind of like baby's first del toro movie in a (laughs) sense of you know how they're like i saw something the other day at like a bookstore that was like they have for like if you're a little cinephile parent they have like baby's baby's first giallo or something and it was like a little children's (laughs) book and it was like a is for argento and like flipping through and has all these like fun little like whimsical drawings and stuff on it and this kind of felt like you know if you're like the cool cinephile parent that's like yeah but i really want to get my kids into like guillermo del toro movies or like he's one of my favorite filmmakers then like this is the the version you sit them down and show them (laughs) where like they can get the the vibe and kind of visual wonder uh an imagination of a guillermo del toro movie but it's maybe not as like grotesque or intense as uh pan's labyrinth or doesn't have you know fish sex like the shape of water does <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit more kind of like family appropriate so i i do think it is it is both sides of that coin it is dealing yeah. with i think a lot of very heavy themes but i i would not i would still say it is a a family friendly movie in and a there lot is of still ways. it's still a musical you know there's still yes some songs and by the way i need to know the book that you just mentioned <laughs> I want I'll, to get that someone as a gift, so I like need to find. That. I'll I'll email you the the link if I can if I can find it. I think okay. there was like another one that was also like Baby's First Noir and was like a similar thing with like little noir buzzwords and keywords and That's... um maybe there is another one, but I definitely know like the one I saw at the bookstore was like Baby's First Giallo. I was like, yes. that's very. That like that's something that like I as a cool uncle would want to get like my exactly. nephews, but also like. <laughs> I'm sure, like, they would not understand it or would just be like, what is this dumb book my uncle got me or something? Yeah, like, it, would be more for the, it would be more for the parents, probably. <laughs> right, <to laugh. laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so go, go <laughs> ahead. I definitely need that in my life. Um, yeah, no, I just, I think, you know, obviously, I think when you have musical numbers, too, um, you know, it kind of is reminiscent to a, a childhood type, you know, a movie. Um, and the songs are kind of, you know catchy and and um sweet for the most part but uh i don't i didn't really find that there were a lot of like images that would be you know horrifying to to young audiences or anything like that i honestly think that the um the themes are really the scariest aspects of it and as just kind of a segue you know it's interesting pinocchio has obviously been like we talked about adapted many many times and you know there's different slight variations of like where the story goes but it's generally about pinocchio wanting to become a real boy mm-hmm. and this isn't really the case in guillermo's um which is a, a pretty bold shift in my opinion yeah and i it- almost feel like this is more of geppetto's story in mm-hmm. in a way and and is a bit more of a you know without sp- I, I, it, it happens it happens near the beginning of the movie but the geppetto in this variation has had a son who died during a, a bombing in their town and builds pinocchio out of this sort of like he has this drunken bender where he like cuts down a tree and then fashions this wooden boy at, as a sort of like way to resurrect his his deceased son and there is our the sort of del toro version of the blue fairy which is this kind of like uh 
griffin like woodland fairy creature voiced by <laughs> tilda swinton that comes and imbues pinocchio with life and all of a sudden geppetto gets this this second son um but is trying to sort of fashion pinocchio into being just like his his deceased child and a lot of it being about geppetto trying to grapple with kind of like having to grieve as a father and sort of move on from the death of a child um as well as you know pinocchio as we said who wants to be a real boy but sort of learning through being a real boy there's a lot sort of made out in this movie about how because pinocchio isn't real like he can't quite die and so Mm -hmm. like that becomes kind of the big thematic arc um pinocchio becomes this kind of object of fascination by the like the local fascists in town (laughs) who are like oh we can use him and build like an army of pinocchios and they'll like never die and they'll be indestructible on the battlefield yes yes exactly but then you know as far as pinocchio's personal journey it becomes more about like no to to be human is to even in the face of death sort of like risk yourself for another person Mm -hmm. and to sort of uh the the preciousness of life is knowing that life is kind of brief and fleeting and will end at a certain point it's more about what it means to be human without him actually being human (laughs) right you know like it's not about the quest of him becoming flesh and blood it's more about him understanding what that means you know and 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 also i think geppetto uh says at some point in the movie you were perfect as you are or like Mm -hmm. you know and kind of realizing that he doesn't have to be the son that he you know lost he's pinocchio is his own you know person entity (laughs) whatever you want to say yeah it 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 becomes a lot about um I forgot where I was going with that. So I'll just jump to my <laughs> other question. <laughs> um, I, I did kind of want to ask you about the kind of the, maybe the one aspect of this movie that I kind of struggled with, if only because I, I couldn't quite land on what the, the sort of allegorical connection was, was a lot of the like Mussolini fascism stuff and whether or not that was, you know, th- this is clearly a subject matter that, Guillermo del Toro has been fascinated in a lot of his different and a lot of his other movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as like whether or not this is him just sort of thinking about this subject again is sort of countries across the world sort of begin to move towards uh, more fascist leaning regimes or whether or not there is some sort of clear allegory to like people in a fascist government are sort of operating like puppets for one person's will. Um, I'm, I was really curious to ask what your thoughts uh, were on kind of like what you think the meaning of this version of Pinocchio being set in this particular time period means. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. <laughs> um, and I'm not entirely sure that I know. Uh, I actually struggle with that myself. Like I, I'm not sure. I, I understand, you know, the fascist setting and in, in the sense that, um, I don't know, it's it's a way, again, like many of his movies to kind of um, use this opportunity to, to show like something real and real life and scary real life because he often, the, the, the characters and the setting are often more scary than anything fantasy related in his movies, mm-hmm. which is always a, a thing, but as far as like, you know, allegory or, or, you know, what it's trying to say, I'm honestly not sure. Um, it's, it's a great question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't reveal what, what exactly that. Uh... No, I, I, I think it was just something like in, as I was watching it, um, you know, I saw this a few weeks ago at like a, mm-hmm. an, an early press screening and that, that was just sort of the one part of the movie where I, it it both made sense in kind of the larger project of his work, but mm-hmm. was sort of something that as I got to the end of the movie was like, this is the one thing that's kind of tripping me up on this that I can't. It's not like when you watch Pan's Labyrinth and I think a lot of the fantasy elements are kind of like direct mirrors of stuff yes, that's happening absolutely. in the real world in that movie. And this didn't quite have that. And so it made the kind of the 
the the specificity of the time period that he's setting this movie in feeling very intentional but sort of having a hard time grasping what that intention was yeah yeah it's like he made a statement with it but yet i don't exactly know what the statement is um no i totally agree and i that was something else that i was uh, i had made note of that i wasn't sure as to but his I, intention but i think to me just sort of kind of like thinking thinking broadly about this movie again i think the thing that is most exciting to me about it is as I hinted earlier, like th- this feels like him finding a very specific way into this material and, and bringing certain aspects of the Pinocchio story out that, that maybe have kind of always been there, but, mm. but sort of bringing them more to the forefront or saying, you know, that what we talked about with kind of like, what, what does it mean to be a quote real boy and him mm-hmm. kind of recontextualizing that is like, Oh no, I mean life, you can't not have life without death. Um, and you know, this is me kind of transitioning to like a larger conversation about Guillermo del Toro. You know, he's a filmmaker that I'm always curious what, what his next project is or like what the movies are going to turn out to be, even though Mm -hmm. he's not, you know, to, to crib a, a Mark Maron's saying like, (laughs) he's not one of my guys. Um, but like, like Pan's Labyrinth is maybe the one movie of his that I kind of unabashedly love. Um, even though I am. Most of the time I walk out of his movies thinking like I I I had a really good time and like it's immaculately designed like all Guillermo del Toro movies even the ones I don't like all look incredible um I think even just but comparing this to something like Nightmare Alley last year which was a movie that did not really work for me as much as I was sort of dazzled by the you know the costuming and the production design and the cinematography um that I think compared to this movie felt like the the struggle I had was sort of not understanding what it was about that novel or the original movie from the forties that sort of what, what it was that he was trying to bring out of it by Mm -hmm. remaking it. And this, I think by comparison, it's so clear, like what he wanted to bring out of it. And it not just sort of looks like a Guillermo del Toro movie, but it feels thematically like a Guillermo del Toro movie, which I think is something different than I compared to like his movie he had last year, where it sort of felt a bit thematically anonymous and not quite understanding what he, what knew he was sort of bringing to the table in Mm. the story. But I'm, I'm curious since he is a favorite filmmaker of yours, what it is about uh, his style, his aesthetic that really speaks to you yeah um i mean there's a variety of reasons why i love guillermo del toro and there's many directors that i love too for different reasons but um you know and i do have to say this movie is is gorgeous by the way the um the animation the stop um stop motion the tactility of it and and the there there's just this like loving handmade quality to all the the puppets and the sets that they are on and I, I think it's something that, you know, it comes through in so many stop motion animation movies just because of like the sheer amount of time it takes yeah, to make them. The effort, but, yeah. Yeah. But I, just even walking out, I, the other kind of immediate thought I had was like, well, he should do more. And like, this is, it almost, it feels like also when like Wes Anderson made the, the jump to like doing animated movies with Fantastic mm-hmm. Mr. Fox. And it's like this light bulb going off of like, I don't know. It's it's baffling that it like took you this long to like make the transition to this because it feels so like perfectly you. attuned to <laughs> the this filmmaker's aesthetics and how like perfectly like overly designed everything is in the world and how like the the smallest little like object on a desk or just like creature design is so like well thought out. Yeah. Um it, it, it I, I think that working in animation allows that kind of imagination in the images that del toro has to just sort of like f- go to its its fullest and sort of most kind of broad sweeping uh level that it's ever been yeah and i just um you know i can't praise the that enough because it's just gorgeous but something about uh del toro that i've always um admired and you know, you'd like to think every director is going to be like this, but there's just something always, um, and I think you just said, like, lovingly, something about his work. I always feel like a lot of love goes into it. Um, 
there's kind of a, you know, connective tether through all of his films that they, you know, and there's a movie, like if you watch it, it feel it feels like Guillermo del Toro, you know? And um, I just think that, I think there was even a quote about this movie. He said something like what is right and what is wrong um, or some, some interview I saw, um, which is also another kind of theme of this because Pinocchio, you know, with the nose and if he lies, he's being trying, you know, trying to be like a good boy, not just a real boy. Um, I feel like he's just his usage of him. First of all, just the beauty of his films, the dark, um, you know, sometimes in some darker mixed with the real characters that come through that are generally sympathetic, hateable. I mean, she's Michael Shannon in, uh, in the fish movie, um, <laughs> which I love, <laughs> um, is, uh, is one of the most detestable like characters ever. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, monsters often being the humans, I don't know. I just feel like with him, anytime I journey into one of his movies, I feel like I'm hanging out in his like <laughs> um, daydream psyche, you know, and that's just, uh, you know, there's directors that, you know, maybe dabble, tip their toe, you know, their to- dip their toes into something like that. But for him, I just feel like it's it's a Guillermo world. And I'm like, oh, you know, and that's just something that I really, really admire. And I've yet to see something of his that has um, disappointed me. So, and Pans is definitely my favorite, but um, I've even found some of the ones like that. I, I I don't know, maybe didn't think I loved as much revisiting. And it's just, I don't know, you just get um, immersed in the world. And Pinocchio is the same thing. I mean, and the score is terrific, by the way, we have to point that out as well. And Mm -hmm. the acting, uh, (laughs) voice uh, choices i love you and mcgregor (laughs) oh yeah we haven't even talked about i mean that's that's even another example of like a quintessential part of this story Mm -hmm. that is maybe tweaked a little bit i mean you and mcgregor playing jiminy cricket um who i don't i don't even know if he's even referred to as jiminy cricket he's just referred to as as the cricket um but is he has another name too i think yeah, but yeah. but it, it is not the characterization. It is this element of the story that all of us are like very, very aware of, probably mostly because of the Disney cartoon and little <laughs> Jiminy Cricket and his top hat singing When You Wish Upon a Star. But this is like a totally different characterization of mm-hmm. um of the cricket in this story. And it, it, it is just another indication of like him kind of taking these familiar parts of the the Pinocchio story, but finding kind of new alterations on them. Yep. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel like kind of the same version of this story that you've heard or read over and over and over again. And it's able to kind of take these sort of surprising pivots in places to where you're not really, exp- you're not really sure like where it's going to go. Um, there, you know, there's a section where, was like oh okay so we're moving to like a boys military school now and i was like <laughs> that's not i don't remember anything like this in the yeah, pinocchio story so the- <laughs> yeah and, and so it it, I, it it is just sort of me saying like it allows this story to sort of take i think surprising pivots in an otherwise very familiar narrative absolutely yeah and that's what's why this works and is better than the Zemeckis one for Gosh. for one of many reasons but uh yeah um even though when I started watching this movie um I can't think of the actor's name but he plays uh in Game of Thrones Walter Frey and he plays Geppetto oh da- David Bradley is his name <laughs> um I I mean a great great vocal great, performance great uh, vocal performance <laughs> but first I was like all I could picture was uh <laughs> I could I couldn't quite pinpoint his like who it was, but the voice sounded so familiar. And then afterwards, I was like, it, it was like really grating on me of like I cannot figure out who that mm-hmm. that actor was, but I know I'd recognize that voice. So like, oh, of course, that's who it is. And yeah. the, he also, um, I'm not as big of a Harry Potter person, but yeah, he's, he's like the janitor at the yeah the, or the, the, the uh, groundskeeper or someone. At, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, let's maybe transition to kind of the other new release of the week, um, which is Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. 
mm-hmm. which I say has been one of the more, I think, kind of hotly anticipated titles of the fall. Um, I talked about it on the uh, TIFF podcast that we did um, when I saw it at that festival. And it had been a few months, so I would, and and I think when I had seen it at TIFF, First of all, the 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 feeling on the ground. Uh, you can feel free to disagree if if this was not your experience, but I feel like th- this was easily the most divisive movie of that festival when we were there. Um, and walked out feeling very very mixed on it, and so was interested mm-hmm. to revisit it. Watched it again last night. Um, I. <sighs> Let, let me just let me just transition this to you because I feel like my thoughts on this movie have been I, I also wrote the review for it for film inquiry so I feel like my my thoughts have already kind of been bouncing out there in the world about what I think about this movie but <laughs> yeah but I'm I, curious about the second viewing like I'm, yeah I'm... I I would say this it the second viewing really did no favors to it is is oh. what what I will what I will say but I'm you and I have not had a conversation about this movie so I'm fascinated to know your opinions on it I I guess for anyone who isn't aware of uh the movie and did not listen to our tiff show uh this is basically based off of a I believe 2010 2012 play um about a morbidly obese man uh named charlie who's played in the movie by uh brendan fraser and kind of what's been talked about is this like uh really exciting possibly like oscar winning comeback performance um and as as i said he has this eating disorder and is kind of eating himself to death out of uh guilt and uh depression over the loss of a former partner um as he is sort of entering his sort of final days of life, more than likely, uh, he decides to reconnect with his estranged daughter, played by Sadie Sink from Stranger Things. And the movie becomes this sort of very tightly contained story about this man sort of attempting to find redemption in finding redemption in another, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, his daughter is this. Uh, his daughter is this mischievous troublemaker. I, I think part of the movie's sort of arc is him trying to show the world that this this girl that everyone has sort of like tossed off is like, well, she's evil. She's a troublemaker. She's going to amount to no good, that she actually does have worth. And for him to hopefully inspire her to be all that she can be, and that in tune will sort of redeem him at for sort of all of these things that he's done in his life including sort of uh leaving her and her mother to be with this this other lover um and sort of what he has also kind of done to his body later in life it is this movie that is bringing in all of these sort of also like broad literary concepts and and mm. uh allusions to stuff like Moby Dick and is also trying to tackle kind of these larger religious ideas Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of like the best summary of it for people. It it really is like you can you can very much tell that this is based off of a stage play. It's pretty contained to just this one apartment where yeah. um this character lives and kind of this very small collection of people, um, including the daughter who kind of come in and out over the course of uh the final couple days of his life. Yeah. No, that was uh that was quite the <laughs> synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> I know that uh, I was just kind of remembering uh, your review, and I, I do remember like the last line is that you wanted to roll your eyes. So this this should be a fun. <laughs> <laughs> I assume um, that's that's maybe priming up to like you really like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know. Um, so when I saw it, and it was uh, it was an early show, which is probably like I feel like not the best time for the the whale. I don't know, like a, a morning show, um, <laughs> showing it Tiff. I haven't seen it again since then, but I did walk out and I remember someone asking me, you know, how did you feel about that? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those ones that I had to sit on, you know, Um, like, I think it's, it's just the truth that the performances are, are all very good. Um, There are some really well-written dialogue. I, I think it's overly, 
it's a bit melodramatic. Um, it's a little bit, I don't want to say like the word pretentious, even though I'm saying it by saying it. Um, I would but- say that, but <laughs> <laughs> there are some sections where it's almost like it, it gets a little bit too full of itself. Um, but you know, Frasier does do a terrific job. There's some great monologues and some, there's some lovely moments with him and Sadie Sink, uh, as well as, um, some of the other characters, uh, that come into the, the home. Um, his nurse and best friend, um, who is his terrific in it. I think it's Hong Chow. Yeah. Uh, I, I think she gives the best performance. In the movie. I, I, I mean, I mean, no, no shots against Frasier, but I think like yeah. the, the, the moments of this movie where it, it, it kind of clicks for me are the scenes between the two of them. Yeah. And I think, or you feel a sort of relationship between those two characters that I, at least for me, I did not feel with the other people who yeah, kind of no, come I in think and out this apartment. I think their rapport and relationship comes across a lot more organically and mm-hmm. therefore a lot more emotionally than the scenes with even him and his daughter. And that's, you know, not to say they don't do a great job, but um, some, something about those scenes are definitely the ones that I enjoyed the most. And honestly, we're equally as moving as, as any scene where, you know, Frazier's talking to his daughter who he's trying to connect with and getting very emotional doing so. Um, and some of the scenes with Frazier on his own are also done um, very well, you know, when he's just engorging himself. And I, I don't know, you can see, you know, the pain. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's a very... You know, obviously, whenever you adapt from a play, it's it's going to be like one of those one setting movies. Um, and sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It, it has to rely on how good the performances are and how good the dialogue is. I mean, that's just that's basically what it is. And I feel like this was a good idea. I just feel like there may have been a couple execution elements that could have been done better. I think that the cast was done well. Um, you know, I do think I, it annoys me that this was like the uh, return of Brendan Fraser. Cause personally, I think like he's, he's just been here. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, <laughs> we, do we maybe want to, do we maybe want to talk about Brendan Fraser a little bit? Cause he's, he's obviously been like in the clearly in the spotlight and is like working that campaign trail. Like it's nobody's business. I mean, he's, he's working whether or not you think this is like the performance that should win best actor at the Oscars or like even care about the Oscars anymore. Like no, nobody is working that like Oscar campaign trail harder and probably more effectively than Brendan Fraser. Um, (laughs) and just sort of like every interview, every like screening of this movie just shows up and it just seems to be kind of like, happy to be there and happy to be kind of like right. back in the conversation but I'm 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 curious especially since I know you're a little bit older than I am kind of like mm-hmm. what your relationship <laughs> is to him and kind of like what you thought of him as an actor kind of in that 90s to kind of early 2000s period where I would say he he was kind of at maybe his apex as a movie star mm. yeah peak Frazier yeah um <laughs> Well, I grew up on, you know, movies like Encino Man, which mm-hmm. is just so much fun. If you have not seen, he, he's a caveman who wakes, it's woken up in the 90s and uh, it's good stuff. Um, and also, uh, what is that one where <laughs> with him and Billy, uh, Billy Madison, yeah, him and Billy Madison, um, him, <laughs> um, they grab the radio station. I just can't think of the name of it right now. Oh, um, I'm not. I'm not sure. The two, the two that come, or the three that come to my mind that I remember were obviously like George of the Jungle, since I was probably like a little bit younger than you, mm. and then um, Bedazzled. Oh uh, yeah, Bedazzled. Where, <laughs> where he kind of gets. To I play still kind of like that movie sometimes. <laughs> it's I. I mean, if anything, like that kind of I think shows that's probably like the best showcase of his talent as a comedic oh, performer. Airheads. Sorry, it was bothering me. It's Adam Sandler, him and Steve Buscemi. Oh, Aaron okay. Hanks. So I've never, I've never actually never seen that Adam Sandler okay. movie, to be honest. So that's, <laughs> well, that's what... Encino Man was ninety two, Airheads was ninety four. You were probably in diapers. It's all good. Yes, yes. I was, <laughs> I was a very little baby then. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I do remember Bedazzled as, as probably the the comedy of his that stands out the most. And then obviously, like 
I feel like the Mummy series is probably oh, yeah. like the Mummy was the, the biggest like... thing that he was ever involved in. Probably like his the biggest he ever was as. I mean, most of his movies, I feel like, with the exception of some stuff like School Ties, um, or like Gods mm. and Monsters, where he's doing some more dramatically hefty stuff. I feel like most of the movies he was in were kind of these very broad, goofy comedies, and then obviously like the mummy becomes this sort of big action franchise that he gets to be a part of and is kind of a, a precursor to the sort of like the, the current Chris type. Uh, Cause you know, I was going to say like Chris Evans, Chris Pratt type of the kind of like kind of winking, um, very like traditionally handsome movie mm-hmm. star that is like a little bit in on the joke of kind of has matinee idol good looks and gets to be a little bit quippy in this big blockbuster. Um, I feel like he he sort of got to be the version of that in the late 90s and early 2000s with those yeah. mummy movies. The mummy, especially the first mummy, is terrific. I think it's a blast. Um, the second one is not as fun, but still fun. And then we don't talk about the other one. That, that's, <laughs> without Rachel, but that, does, that doesn't exist to me. But um, yeah, he has a great charisma. I mean, that's mm-hmm. part of the thing, you know, part of the character. And they have a great rapport. Um, the whole cast does really. And uh, yeah, there's a reason that people love the mummy. Right. Um, and I guess we were just missing that. Oh, you know, I actually really like blast from the past. I don't know if you've seen that. That's a late nineties. I've not seen that one actually, but that's a rom-com he was in. And it's just such a, with Christopher Walken, um, it's such a bizarre um, movie. <laughs> Is that the one where he's been like living underground, like in a bunker or something? And then he like, like he was, bo- but like his parents are from the 60s. So like he grew up thinking that it, the sort of culture of the 1960s was just like yes. all there is. And then he like come, they let him like go above ground for the first time <laughs> yeah, as, as an needs- adult. And it's the 90s. And so he's like totally out of touch with modern day culture. hundred like percent. Yeah. Okay. They, <laughs> it's uh, Christopher Walken and Sissy Spacek actually. Um, they, oh. they build a shelter and they happen to be down there when there's like a, and it, sh- it turns out that it's just like a random like accident. Something gets dropped off a plane, but he thinks it's like a uh, bombing because he, he assumes that's going to happen soon. And so then they stay down there and he says, I think in like 30 years or however many years it'll be safe to go above. And so, yeah, he's a grown man that goes above to get basically he goes to get supplies uh, but then falls in love with Alicia Silverstone. But it's a bizarre movie, but I have a little soft spot for it. But um. Yeah, so kind of pivoting back, he, um, you know, people were acting like, you know, the resurgence of, um, what are they called? The uh, Renaissance, I think it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we we actually even wrote, a, uh, had a writer write an article and it was the Renaissance. But um, I, I feel like, you know, it's just, he's just one of those actors that can, is amazing and just gets overlooked. And I, I feel like, I don't know that this will win. I don't know, like you said, if anyone cares about the Academy Awards anymore. I mean, I'm curious if there's going to be another slap. Um, but um, <laughs> I, uh, I I always watch it. I'll always watch it. But um, I, I do think he should be acknowledged as being the best, uh, one of the best performances of the year. Um, especially, I, I feel like he, uh, you know, really gives everything into this role. And um, so I'm hoping he does. But yeah, 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 I think if anything, I think this movie and this role is a good showcase for kind of his strengths as a performer kind of that that maybe get overlooked in sort of a lot of the, as we said, Mm -hmm. sort of broad comedies that he sort of made a name for himself doing in the 90s. Um, You know, this is a performance where he is covered in a lot of like makeup and prosthetics um and has to emote a lot and brendan fraser is a very expressive actor he has a very Mm -hmm. expressive face and is also someone who you know you you can watch interviews with him and he's clearly someone who is very humble and sort of has a lot of a big open heart and a lot of empathy as a person and Mm. i think this is a character that kind of requires requires an actor to sort of 
extend an arm in a way and sort of make a sort of empathetic connection towards the audience Mm -hmm. and and to sort of invite you to sort of take a second look at this character that uh you know most people in the world would probably turn away from or be disgusted by and sort of show you this this very sweet humble in some ways complicated very human person and um who's as as Fraser has sort of said his his superpower is his own sense of of empathy and sort of willingness to see the good in other people um I think as I kind of wrote in the review and sort of mentioned on the tiff podcast my problem with the movie sort of or and and revisiting it kind of had other problems that sort of came up for me but I my initial thought kind of walking out of it while I was very conflicted was sort of feeling like Frasier and the other actors working so hard to kind of make that empathetic connection to the audience and kind of build that bridge between a character that we would otherwise kind of turn away from or to think of as this kind of disgusting monster Mm -hmm. and show him to be this sort of open-hearted empathetic um complicated but sort of like uh you know, but very endearing human but, being. Yeah, endearing, yeah. But this movie's also directed by Darren Aronofsky, who um I I would say I mean Darren Aronofsky's not someone I'm like super I some of his movies I like, some of his movies I kind of admire a lot of the craft while also like there's aspects of them that I kind of struggled to connect to. Mm-hmm. But he is someone who I think has an undeniable skill at um, portraying the grotesque and Mm. the sort of horrific. If you think about something like Black Swan or Requiem for a Dream or some of the stuff in Mother. And I think whether he intended to or not, I think instinctually cannot help himself but sort of framing and shooting Frasier as this kind of like disgusting monster and where the camera is sort of like leering over him and watching as mm-hmm. like, oh gosh, what watch as he takes these two whole pizzas and like rolls them up and dips them in jelly and slobbers it all over his face, or watch as he gorges down on this meatball sub. And this movie is both wanting you to sort of see Charlie for who he is on the inside, while also I think the filmmaking is kind of gawking a little bit and making him this kind of like freak show attraction in a way that is sort of like counterintuitive to, to what the rest of the movie is doing. And I just sort of walked out finding it very kind of aesthetically confused and almost like different aspects of the movie were pushing against each other. Um, And that's not to say that, you know, we can't have kind of like complicated contradictory art. I mean, I am someone who kind of like, sang the praise of tar on this podcast a few months ago but like this is a movie that it just sort of seemed like that what the actors were doing and what the sort of visual filmmaking was doing in this movie were sort of counterproductive and i think revisiting it revisiting this movie still kind of agree with all of that but i think Mm -hmm. also kind of my maybe my second problem with this movie is (laughs) Kind of as I hint- <laughs> well, as I hinted earlier, the kind of big like redemption arc in this movie is him reconnecting with his daughter and sort of co- convincing everyone else in his life, like, no, my daughter that you have sort of like written off as this troublemaker, this sort of evil child who is just like always going to hurt other people, like she actually has goodness in her and is is actually a saint and i got to the end of this movie at the the the, the, after watching it the second time and was like i don't believe any of that i totally (laughs) think the sadie sink character in this movie is a detestable sort of horrible human being and the the sort of like even even further was like rolling my eyes at 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 and and it's no shot to like frazier or any of the other actors or to sadie sink but I think it is something kind of like baked into the the screenplay mm. in a way that like, I don't think, I, I feel like Charlie, the character is trying to tell us like, see, 
she's a good person. And as I'm watching, I'm like, mm, no, she's not. <laughs> like, He's trying to convince himself. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's sort of like, mm, I don't, I don't, I don't buy what you're, what you're selling. What you're sir. selling. Yeah. Of, of like, there's the whole um, kind of part in this movie where um, I don't know. I don't know if you remember where like, there's the character who is like a missionary mm -hmm. that we learn his, is actually like a child runaway and is not connected with this church at all. And uh, Sadie Sink like puts these pictures of him on the internet and that somehow to like, at first we think to bully him, but it actually winds up getting his parents to like find where he is. And he like ends up going home and Charlie uses that is like, see an example. She's, she did good and she didn't even realize it. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, that's an accident, my dude. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't buy for a second that your daughter like did this out of like some hidden secret, like, saint mary complex in her brain or something like that <laughs> but tell us how you really feel <laughs> um yeah i you know i i don't have such a <laughs> such a reaction as you <laughs> with them but i do think she's a brat uh and i think she's kind of a little shit you know <laughs> like that age that you know does what she wants and clearly enjoys uh meddling mm -hmm. and uh you know i think that for the most part you know this movie is about like Brendan Fraser's character kind of finding some level of catharsis, like some level of closure, whether or not it's really as he sees it. Um, you know, he just wants that. I don't know for him to feel okay about passing, I guess. And um, yeah, to kind of go back, I do agree with you about, you know, the, the messiness and the, um, the way that the those scenes are shot um i definitely do think he's trying to make us uncomfortable and trying to make the character um look grotesque in his actions and you know i think even the character himself i mean there's that one stretch where he goes on a binge of food and it's just like he doesn't give a shit you know he's just like mm -hmm. going for it um and i think that you know i have mixed feelings about that like i feel it works for the movie in a sense. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't know, is it necessary? Was there other ways it could have been done? I don't know. And Aronofsky is, um, he's a director I'd like. Um, well, Requiem for a Dream was a movie that actually was super influential for me when it came out. Uh, I just happened to see it at, you know, early teens and it was just like, I don't know, timing or something. I just thought it was a really well done movie. Also disturbing, obviously. Um, anyone who was like worried about their kids doing drugs should just make them watch that movie. <laughs> Repeat. Um, and they won't. But uh, I, I, I think it's just one of those like beautiful but disgusting things, you know. And this movie, he's obviously bringing a little bit of that into it. Um, but I do think that there's it's still done with enough sensitivity that I don't think it's a huge issue of, with, of the film, but I just overall find, find the movie to be a little bit messy. I feel like it's just like it has, it has the, um, the good intentions, but it's really banking on the sentimentality and the, and the heartwarming moments and the tears, you know, um yeah. i remember after i saw the screening um the, the person beside me was just like sobbing their heart out yeah and uh they were know, they I'll, were definitely in my screening at tiff like people that I, there was a i think a couple people like in front of me that were like bawling their eyes out or like mm -hmm. you know hearing people like sniffling and i mean i so i i i don't mean to you know no you were it, laughing it, it, at the end we all no, know <laughs> i was i was definitely not laughing i was like get me the hell out of this Chackling. theater now <laughs> um no we will talk in a couple weeks about an ending that uh made did make me cackle um here in a couple weeks but um no it, Ooh, it was intrigued. not it was not this one um i can tell you off podcast i don't know if I, I think i'm a little embargoed about saying anything on public <laughs> about it not right now um but but yeah i i this is definitely a movie that i think is getting very i did talk with people like in line at tiff that this got like very very emotional reactions out mm. of them um but certainly think it is it is fascinating to see what what aspects of this movie people that 
are hitting that kind of emotional core for people and what aspects for people like myself or is, is is maybe sort of keeping them from from having that kind of experience i would have loved to have had yeah. that that kind of experience with with this movie and to kind of feel it to feel as emotionally overwhelming as it did for so many of the people i talked to um it you know as you said like it it reaches this kind of level of emotional crescendo that i do feel gets a little bit into like i mean it's pretty objectionably like a lot of like crying sliding down the walls sort of like extreme uh acting mm-hmm. going on by the by the end of it and that's kind of a bit of something that i don't always take res- you out of it a little right i yeah. don't always respond to like i the like i'm gonna like scream to the heavens and like cry and slide around on the floor kind of acting <laughs> always but <laughs> you know to to each their own i suppose <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely um I got choked up. I, I wasn't a I wasn't a sobber, but um I definitely, you know, I think it's also a movie that could have been cut down. Mm. Um I feel like when you do a play and you do a, a movie that's in like a singular or, you know, a couple locations, I feel like it can sometimes like feel, you know, the time doesn't matter. And then sometimes you can feel the minutes more. And I feel like if this would have shaved, I don't know, 20 minutes even off of it, I think it would have also been good. <laughs> um, and and honestly, like we said, it had more conversations with um, you know him and his best friend because I think that those were like some of the best moments. Um, and obviously, yeah, the whole Moby Dick, like the movie's called The Whale, but it's... Did, it's... Did, does that, did that aspect of the movie work for you because that was the other thing where i you know all these kind of broad big ideas that the screenplay is trying to sort of wrap its arms around including a lot of the like religious topics but i i think specifically all the allusions to herman melville and moby dick and this idea of like being truthful in your writing and being truthful in yourself um did, did any of those aspects of the movie kind of work for you yeah, um, you know, I mean, it it did. I, I I really thought that like once you actually know why he wants to keep reading this essay about Moby Dick, you know, I feel like I enjoyed that and I thought it was a sweet connection. And um, you know, I guess spoiler, it's something his daughter wrote. It shouldn't really be that shocking. Um, <laughs> but it's it's he was a teacher too, and he uh, it's something she wrote when she was young. I don't, I don't know, like when this movie first was released, you know, obviously the whale and it's talking about an over, you know, um, someone that's overweight. I felt like that was a little, I don't know, did it have to be titled that way? Right. I didn't love that, especially when, you know, oh, when I watch it, okay, that's the connection. But there's obviously a dual, you know, thing going on. So I think I think that about wraps this up for <laughs> for this week. Um, yeah. But but I mean, you know, the, this I think will clearly be a movie that I I think is depending on what kind of attention it gets, sort of more into the like award season of, of early next year. I, I I think will continue to be a movie that sort of provokes a lot of debate among the people. Oh, who for see sure. It. And, yeah. Um, I think you know, the Rotten Tomato scores even continue to go down. Yeah, uh, I think it's at like 60 something now. Um, it, it's it's definitely one that is, um, I don't know, I, I would say love or hate it, but I'm still like very much just in the middle. Mm. Um, appreciative, but also like we discussed things that I, I didn't love. Um, Pinocchio was definitely better movie of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you know, I, I would still recommend seeing it because I, I do think that there's a lot lot to uh take take out of it that's positive well next week on the show um chrissy i don't i don't know if you're aware there's there's this movie called avatar the way of water that's coming out in a week um wait you know yeah uh, i thought that was 10 years from now (laughs) no big jim's back um big jim uh i've seen it i don't know what i I think I'm also embargoed from talking about this one, but um, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is a very wet movie. 
it's definitely more wet than Titanic, but less wet than the <laughs> abyss. So uh, we'll leave it there, but uh, we'll have a whole episode breaking down the Avatar sequel next week. Then as we get closer to the Christmas holidays, we'll do a full spoiler discussion of Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel. Uh, if nice. you want a spoiler-free discussion of that movie, I would say check out the TIFF episode we did. Um, mm -hmm. Also around that time, we'll be talking about Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which I, I also got to see recently. Um, and then uh, as we wind down the year, maybe we'll do an, an episode on the, the best movies of, of 2022. 